Darren Burrell. And I'm your co-host, Patrick McIntyre. We will explore the stories from our conscious collection of music, books, and film. The ones that have shaped our lives. Join us as we take a closer look at what remains. Welcome to Remainders, where we share stories from our conscious collection of movies, books, and film. The stories, the sounds, and the characters that stay with you long after they've returned to the shelves. Today, we're talking about 1994's Ed Wood by acclaimed director Tim Burton. Ed Wood is the story of Hollywood's biggest optimist draped in Angora sweaters. A wide-eyed dreamer and World War II vet who would paratroop in panties and brassieres. His desire to be the next Orson Welles pushed him to work hard and dream big in a town that celebrated the artistic misfit, even if it was behind closed doors and on Poverty Row back in the 1950s. As a closeted cross-dresser, Ed Wood worked at a time when gender norms were not part of society's consciousness. He would come out of the closet with his secret to write and direct his first feature, a Poverty Row docudrama about cross-dressing and transsexuality. He was a consummate idealist who would often work around big budgets and elaborate set designs with forgotten stars, stock footage, and low-budget props. Over time, his story became legend and his films became sought-after cinema gold in the cult classic section at Blockbuster, Hollywood Video, and Family Video stores across the country. Tim Burton furthered the Ed Wood legend when he made this film, which Patrick and I are pleased to discuss and talk about what remains with you. How you doing, Pat? I'm doing fantastic, Darren. How are you doing today? <laughs> I'm doing good, man. Uh, this is the last episode, man. This is the last episode of season one. And I'm just going to take a moment to say I really enjoyed it. And this has been so fun. So thanks for doing it with me. I hope everybody out there has enjoyed season one. We're coming back with season two. We're, we're discussing it now. But I think 10 episodes was good for, for season one. And... I don't know. I, I just I hope we have season after season after this. It's been enjoyable for me. Yeah, it's been uh, an incredible experience for myself. Um, I want to take a moment to thank uh, everybody who has listened to us, who's maybe ch- tipped in for one, maybe all all nine or ten episodes. It's great. Definitely want to give a shout out uh, to my co-host Darren Vorell for all of his incredible talent, all the music that you hear on these, all the editing. This is all the work of Darren Vorell. I've just been writing on his coattails all season long, and it's uh, definitely been uh, a good ride. And uh, I just want to make sure that uh, you get the attention and uh, props that you deserve. Well, that was very sweet. I appreciate that. And uh, it's something where we talk about in the art world, when you enjoy it, uh, you get into that rhythm where you don't really recognize the work. Obviously, there's a lot of work involved, but it is a a labor of love, as we say. And uh, don't sell yourself short there, Pat. I cannot do this without you. And uh, that's the, the best part, is having somebody to talk to about conscious living uh, and the things that come with it. And we've done this, as we talked about before, since we were in our 20s at a movie store in the in Yorktown Shopping Mall here in Lombard, Illinois. So we've come a long way from then. And I don't think we would have believed we would be doing this later on in life together, where we can kind of have the same discussions we had back then. So what, what a gift, you know what I mean? You just never know what life's going to bring you. And, and 
and I wish I wish there was a movie store we could do this in one day, but we're working towards that. I think that's definitely a long term goal that I'm signing up for. <laughs> okay, well, let's get into Ed Wood, man. I love this film. I'm going to tell you, I had the original. I still do somewhere. I always talk about it. A lot of my stuff that I had as a kid is in my brother's uh, attic. But I had the original front and back light box poster from 1994 from the theater that I bought on eBay like in 1998. So I love this film. I've loved it for a long time. It's uh, Johnny Depp and Martin Landau killing it. Sarah Jessica Parker. I always loved classic horror movies so that ingrained in this has the extra added benefit for me plus watching it now I get to see some places like it's great in the beginning where they kind of move out from the Hollywood sign and they kind of bring you into this 1950s Hollywood and what it looked like. And a lot of those places are still there with me spending a lot more of my time in Los Angeles now. Uh, It's cool to kind of watch this now and see those places and and have visited them. So like the place that Johnny Depp's having that drink with his cast is Bordner's. And I went there after my girlfriend's first uh, Second City show. It's just kind of cool because watching it now, I could be like, oh, I've been there. The bars in this movie look incredible. Like every time they're in a bar scene, I'm like, that's where I want to be hanging out after the theater or after a movie. Uh, And it just sets the tone perfectly. Well, the lighting in general in this film is brilliant. In many ways, uh, Tim Burton drawing upon his love of old classic horror movies uh, to light it and to set the stage that way. And B-movies, that's the thing, the love of B-movies. And I think the point of this episode of Remainders is to sort of talk about that optimist, the person who, I don't know, maybe isn't as talented as most directors, but has that drive to do it anyway. Oh, we're definitely going to get into that. But yes, he's uh, <laughs> definitely Z-grade schlock. A couple of the major ones, Glenn or Glenda and Plan 9 from Outer Space uh, are obviously his two biggest, most well-known films. But yeah, I mean, this movie itself is an ode to creative artistic expression. And it's a love letter to one of Burton's biggest idols. And it also has the distinction of being Burton's most personal and autobiographical films. I mean, the the parallels between Burton and Wood's careers, um, they run very deep. And so I think we're just going to continue to uh, jump into that. Well, first of all, beginning the film, like I was saying, pulling out from the Hollywood sign to kind of show you that poverty road, to sort of show you Hollywood, to kind of set the stage was so brilliant. And then obviously the beginning goes through those miniatures, much like Ed Wood's career, you know, the setup of all of the tombstones. It's like true Tim Burton art direction with the cast names appearing on gravestones. And that's kind of doing two things, you know, foreshadowing the dead careers and the types of films Ed Wood made right in the beginning. So it's so brilliantly done, in my opinion, and sort of showing that B-movie quality with the monster that comes out of the lake. One of the more brilliant setups of a film for the viewer to understand what you're about to get into. No, it's uh, the opening is incredible. Uh, that's certainly a signature of Tim Burton and the incredible opening sequences. I think of Beetlejuice off the top, but this is definitely my favorite one. Oh yeah, for sure. And I've heard him talk at times through DVD commentaries and stuff, especially like on Sleepy Hollow. He, I remember him talking about, you know, when it comes and says touchstone pictures, he's like, I always want the music to start during those credits so people can really start to get drawn in, get people interested right away in what, what's about to happen. But the first time I kind of see that Ed Wood is that anything goes sort of director to get what I want made and 
kind of what happens and what ends up being made isn't as important as doing the process to him. Of course, he wants it to be great. His play in the beginning of the film is reviewed. It gets a bad review, and Edward says... Well, have you seen, you know, Francis the Mule pictures? It was reviewed terrible, but they're huge hits. But of course, if you know those films, that's Donald O'Connor after Singing in the Rain, and that's sort of like what he became. And now, okay, yeah, some of them were hits, but they're not taken seriously in the least. And that's my first inclination that Ed Wood might not have his priorities straight in regards to the quality and artistic integrity of the films that he wishes to make in Hollywood. No, it's, it's a great point. It's, it's such a great scene near the beginning. Um, you definitely get the sense that he's one of the more genuine and heartfelt leaders uh, that you can ask for. So it's like when they do get that poor review uh, from the play at the beginning, he's quick to encourage everyone working with them that they are doing great work in his eyes. Uh, look, he's always looking for the silver lining and all the negativity. And he's obviously become accustomed to all the negativity. Um, he has his own doubts about whether he will succeed, but he never really doubts his desire and his drive and also the collaboration that is key to filmmaking in general. Yeah, you get moments that he of, of his doubt, like when he's laying in bed and he talks about, you know, Orson Welles was 26 when he made Kane, and I'm, I'm, I'm almost 30 years old here. I've kind of got to get it going. So you see moments where he can be very human, but you're right. When he's talking to people that are on board with what he's doing, he never gives them anything but optimism. And that's a beautiful quality in him. And I had read a long time ago that, Johnny Depp had really wanted to put out and studied Ronald Reagan for this uh, this role and really be sort of that idealistic um, optimism that that came with Ronald Reagan and put it into his character. Wow. Of Ed Wood. That's incredible. Yeah. I mean, so, yeah, one thing I definitely noticed this time, so, I mean, I've seen this movie a whole bunch of times. I, I, I believe you actually turned me on to it years ago, so thank you for that. I might have been a little bit slow to it. I didn't see it when it first came out. But, um, but yeah, one of the things on this rewatch, and kind of just what we were talking about, is that uh, at no point does he really ever deny the claims that he may be a talentless hack. You know, the movie producers, the, the theater and film critics, even eventually his girlfriend... I mean, they all at some point are telling him directly to his face, like, you're not talented. And he definitely, he challenges them on an artistic ability or talent. He deflects it and has other ways to view it, but he doesn't necessarily deny it. You know, he doesn't challenge the idea that he has no talent, but he does look deeper within himself for reasons why he continues to work so hard and wants to tell these stories. He's confident while also kind of ignoring his limitations. There's that great scene where he goes in and, and tries to sell himself on all these ideas that he's got. And then they give him the tin cans of uh, the reel of Glenn or Glenda and they're watching it in the big studio and they say, oh, this has got to be a joke from somebody yeah. over at the other studio. They're playing a joke on me because it's so bad. <laughs> but as he goes on, the, as Edward gets on the phone with them to see what they thought, he goes, "Oh, really? Worst film you ever saw? Well, my next one will be better." And like, you have to love a leader like that. Like, okay, you're right. He never like really acknowledged that it was bad or said that he agreed. He just said, "Well, if you didn't like that one, I've got one other that's going to be better than that." You yeah, know? Depp is amazing in this movie. I mean, I'm confident with saying this is my favorite performance that he's ever given. But yeah, that scene when he's just on that phone. Worst movie you ever saw. Well, next one will be better. <laughs> Every time. <laughs> and you're right. Gets, I love you're it. You're right. Giant Up is excellent in this film. And he just looks so cool, like in that 1950s Hell look, yeah. you know? Hell yeah. There's some moments where he's kind of starts out, you can see he does a little bit of um, 
I don't know what you'd call maybe a runner or something for the studio and that sort of an early Edward job that he had before he gets into these directing roles and he's got a friend on the studio that's an older guy who lets him look through the old stock footage and I just want to talk for a minute about like that's Ed's fascination with stock footage is so relatable to me even now uh, especially now, I think, actually for more people than just myself, because it's become so more readily available to people online. So, for instance, with TLB, when we make a lot of our lyric videos or different things like that, or even stuff in my other projects that I want to put together, I do look for stock footage to see what I can come up with. It's very useful in the way that you can, for the holiday video that we made for TLB, I was able to put together a bunch of beautiful places and kind of set that to the music and it worked really well. At least in my opinion, it worked very well. So it's kind of like exactly what Ed Wood was doing back then. He's like, oh, as soon as he sees the stock footage, oh, he sees this octopus, he sees these wild boars running, he's like, oh, I can tell the whole story with just this stock footage and he starts to go into like the way that his mind worked so in a way i think what's tim burton saying ed wood was really a very brilliant artistic creative but his execution just never was great no doubt i mean first of all that the holiday from tlb is fantastic so you are definitely right about that it came out fantastic thank you but yeah it, it is a tale of adoration and inspiration ed wood and his work conjured something uh, that made Tim Burton want to make movies and everything he loved as a person who looked for connection but only found it in the mysterious and the unknown. Uh, as Chris Ball mentions in the opening credits, Jeffrey Jones is so good. I, de- I definitely don't think it's a coincidence that uh, Tim Burton's best film is about uh, a person and a-, a subject he loved. When I talked earlier about Poverty Row, just for people out there that might not know too much about that, Poverty Row wasn't really like some place where a bunch of people that were jobless hung out. It was um, where studios existed that were an answer to the big studios so that they were actually attainable movie. You know, they in the film, they say that they make crap. You know, the, the guy that's the head of the studio, uh, Screen Classic, says that he makes crap. But this is where Ed Wood goes to get his foot in the door as a director and he feels that he is perfect for the role so in the 1920s through like the 1950s making b pictures as a lower grade alternative to the big studios was doable for people and it and it was a good alternative for people who just didn't have a lot of money and so this is where ed kind of goes to get started on glenn or glenda which is his first film that he writes in direct uh because he's perfect for it because he is a cross-dresser himself and the film is about cross-dressing bill murray who is wonderful in this movie plays Bunny Bunny Breckenridge and uh, he's essentially uh, Ed's connection to the gay and transgender community uh, when they start filming Glenn or Glenda. Glenn or Glenda is definitely one of the more interesting aspects of his career kind of in retrospect. So yeah, like you were saying, it's Ed's movie about cross-dressing and it's, it's deeply personal to him. I feel like eventually it'll actually take over Plan 9 as kind of the movie that... Uh, people will remember him by. Um, and obviously that line is going to resonate uh, as we'll get into it. But it's so intimate and personal for Ed Wood. It's essentially an essay bearing a soul and uh, confronting who he is as a person. He's playing a version of himself, wearing women's clothing. He's even got his real-life girlfriend in the film. and I mean, it's essentially an arthouse indie film that would definitely get lots of attention if he made it today. Yeah, that's interesting because we're talking about this film 
in 2021. And as I said in the intro, uh, it wasn't in the collective consciousness to be accepted, to be a cross-dresser, to be a transvestite. You didn't even talk about it. And um, in many ways, it was accepted. 50s Hollywood was definitely accepting of the misfits and the weirdos and these things that people were called back then, but they just didn't do it in front of the camera. You know, it was more prim and proper, but that's why I love that podcast. You must remember this because the host, Karina Longworth, really goes into what was really happening when you weren't seeing uh, these stars on the screen. And in fact, I'm, I'm reading a Diane Cannon book right now about being married to Cary Grant. And it's so interesting, so interesting to hear her side of what this Cary Grant movie star was like in real life um, when the cameras weren't rolling. So I love that kind of stuff. And again, you said it right. If it was made today, it would be a different thing. It's more, it would be more widely accepted. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was almost like thrown in with the monster movies <laughs> into time. He doesn't have a script. He's like, is there a script? No, fuck no, but there's a poster. He pulls out this monster movie-looking poster. I changed my sex, and this is what he ends up uh, getting his foot in the door. And the way it just shows like the way movies were grinded out with no concept or script to begin with, and then also, like you're saying, in terms of uh, just the perception, especially uh, the gender perceptions. Yeah, like they almost sold the idea of the film first, and they had no idea what it was going to be, but they're like, okay, we start in nine weeks in Tulsa. I've got it pre-sold out, you know? It's, it's kind of funny. We got to get into talking about the first meeting of Bella. In many ways, this is the story of, it's like almost like a buddy film between Bella Lugosi and Ed Wood. So Bella Lugosi, played by Martin Landau, won an Academy Award, which was well- Deserved. If anybody has not seen this, I would almost say go to see Martin Landau first before anything. His performance as Bella Lugosi is insanely important, I think. But also, just the way that these two men connect is important, I think. They both share so much. They first meet next to Bordner's after he comes out of the bar, Ed Wood, and he sees somebody in a coffin next door. And it's Bela Lugosi, and that's how we meet him, Dracula himself, sitting in the coffin. And it's just a wonderful scene. You see him, the camera zooms in on him, and he's got his hands closed, and he says, too constrictive. Uh, I'm planning on dying soon, you know? He's got all these things he says, and they end up sparking a friendship because Ed's like, man, I got to tell you, I've seen all your movies, they're great. And then he's walking Bella to the bus and he get, he goes no just take a ride with me I'll give you a ride home so they you find Bella Lugosi and Ed Wood in a car together Bella's saying all these things like I'm just an ex-boogeyman and uh, no one gives two fucks for Bella it's kind of showing that his career is over they're letting you know that he was such a big star and obviously Ed as this idealist is like this is Bella Lugosi holy shit he should be appreciated but we find out he has an issue with being addicted to morphine uh, and people are, he's washed up, you know, this is um, past his prime. So the men kind of use each other in a lot of ways. Bella needs something to keep going. And that's Ed Wood, Ed Wood, who's going to put him in these films. Ed Wood needs his star and somebody to kind of dangle around to say, we've got Bella Lugosi we got to get these movies made. Yeah, it's it's, it's a working relationship, but it it, it turns into a a, a genuine uh, friendship that is. It certainly gives the film the pathos that uh, kind of puts it over the top. Yeah, so many reasons. So essentially, Lugosi was a god to Ed Wood, 
And as I mentioned, this being a, a deeply personal film to Tim Burton, it's his friend, it's it's Ed Wood's friendship with Bela Lugosi that's not only genuine in the film, but also mirrors Tim Burton's real life idol and friendship with Vincent Price. So Vincent Price mm. was obviously a god to Tim Burton since he was a kid. One of his short films, first uh, short films, was titled Vincent. It's a direct tribute to the horror movie star, and then later. When Tim Burton had a little bit more credibility and uh, clout with the studio system, he put Vincent Price and Edward Scissorhands as the father figure, his creator, and they maintained a friendship near the end of Vincent Price's life. And it's the same way that uh, Tim Burton adored Vincent Price is the same way that Ed Wood adored uh, Bela Lugosi, and the exact same kind of uh, uh, relationship. He shot this movie within a year of Vincent Price's death, so obviously that relationship was kind of foremost in his mind at the time. You know, Edward Scissorhands was Vincent Price's last role, same way that Plan 9 was Lugosi's last role. And so it just kind of adds that whole other layer that, like, it's such a, a great story in itself, but then when you kind of uh, understand the personal connection that Tim Burton had to it, it just kind of, it makes it timeless. You're absolutely right. And you have to love the excitement in Ed for his first film. You know, his determination in many ways is drawn from meeting Bella Lugosi, who inspires him to get the courage to win the job for Glenn or Glenda. Using Bella as a star for the picture, of course, like I said, but the two began a friendship that is mutually beneficial. They both find purpose within it. Both men are flawed in the way that they have a socially unacceptable secret. Edward is a cross-dresser, and Bela Lugosi is a morphine addict. He's a drug addict. It's kind of a lot of ways just like our previous episode on coffee and cigarettes, an ode to, to the misfits. The misanthropes. I mean, again, this is all Tim Burton's wheelhouse. This is the story of Edward, but there's obviously the case of him making the movie and... Uh wanting to do it so bad because it's deeply personal to him. Tim Burton's movies are uh, full of misfits and misanthropes. You know, you have Beetlejuice, you have Edward Scissorhands, and uh, you get the aesthetics. You get the idea that he's a goth kid from California who wanted to make movies because he was a loner, he was a misfit himself. But again, with Ed Wood, uh, you get the sense of what type of person not only Ed Wood was, but also Tim Burton and kind of what drives him, what, uh, what struggles he dealt with. It's kind of a contrast to his other films. And... Um, I mean, it's a huge reason why I love it so much. But with the character Ed, he's like the strongest reason to watch the movie, to connect with him as he fights to do what he loves, even though he is one of those misfits at the time. Talking about just it being such a fun movie, just on the surface, and and the way that Ed Wood is this optimistic and this idealist, and then, you know, getting Bela Lugosi, who's this star on the set, leads into the first sort of star meltdown that has been such a great, fun thing for you and I to talk about over time. And it's just the scene that he denounces Karloff. Karloff being the guy who played Frankenstein, for anybody who does not know out there, and obviously Bela Lugosi famous for playing Count Dracula. And this movie, I don't believe this was really the case in real life, but they're kind of playing off the fact that Bella held this uh, little grudge with Karloff, and he goes, you know, some guy comes up to him on the set before the first scene in Glen or Glenda, and he goes, Mr. Mr. Lugosi, you know, I, I, I got to tell you, I'm a big fan. I loved you as Karloff's sidekick in this movie. And, and, and Bella Lugosi just looks up, you know, with his eye, and he says, Karloff, sidekick, fuck you. <laughs> You know, Karloff does not deserve to smell my shit. That limey cocksucker can rot in hell for all I care. And it's 
fucking brilliant. If that didn't, if that right there didn't win Martin Landau the, the Oscar, I don't know what did. This is one of his funniest films. Like I'm just gonna say, it. like I laugh, I laugh more at this film than like anything that Tim Burton's made. Yeah, and, and because it is what it is, because it's so campy, because it's such a throwback to B movies and old horror movies and stuff like that. Like it's just an easy, it's an easy grab for those comedy moments. And then you got the callback with Bill Murray, who again is is, is so good when they. Uh, are looking for a, a stand-in eventually. He, he basically, his, his screening process is, let's hear you call Karloff a cocksucker. Yeah, <laughs> let's, call, let's hear you call Boris Karloff a cocksucker. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Yeah, and, and, and you said it earlier, uh, not to underscore, we talked about it in the last episode of Bill Murray not really doing much in the 90s, middle 90s. This is 94, Bill Murray. Yeah. Definitely off the beaten path I th- for him, I mean, I know? thought about that for sure. I mean, so I made a general statement if you didn't hear that like you know Bill Murray may may have (laughs) lost his way a little bit in the 90s and you you kind of push back on that you know rightfully but I mean in terms of starring roles in the mid 90s he had I looked at his IMDB today he had like the, the, man, the man who knew too little. Yeah, lo and behold, he's in the movie we're talking about next in like the oh, mid nineties. Yeah. Yeah, totally, yeah. we're watching we're watching another black and white movie with Bill Murray, two in a row, and that's that. I don't think that's a coincidence, hell yeah. But I mean, in the nineties, he had in the mid nineties, he had the man who knew too little and the elephant movie, larger than life. I mean, that's basically all the starring roles he had for like five years straight. You know, he had like a small role in this for sure, which is amazing. But this movie made no money. Nobody was seeing it and he was not even the star of it. So I'm standing by my general statement that the mid 90s were was not his strongest point. Okay, and I can get on board with that. If you're talking about, you know, box office and starring roles. okay, I I can I can. That's all I was saying. All respect to Bill Murray. No disrespect at all. Before we started rolling, I was talking to Pat about seeing that Martin Scorsese Netflix series about Fran Lebowitz. And I I wanted to mention this because it's just kind of relevant to this conversation. So in it, Fran Lebowitz is talking about loving things, but not really knowing when you're, you're good at them or not. So for instance, you know, when you love music and you love to sing, but that doesn't mean you should be a singer, right? Um, You should keep that to yourself and move towards something you are good at. So you can still love it. That's fine. Just like, don't be a singer, right? And then she says, there's sort of a problem with the younger generation right now because they live in a time where no one tells them they're, they're, they're not any good. There's nothing but encouragement from friends and family online. You know, you can post anything of you singing, even if it's not good. Somebody that you know that you're close with is going to say, good job, keep on going, don't give up, you know? Uh, I think what she's trying to say is like, no, someone should tell them to give up because you like walk this line in, in the world where like you're given a talent and sure you can craft it and everything, but like there's a point where you either have it or you don't. And she's saying in this world with the easy accessibility of social medias and stuff, people can literally put whatever crap they want out there. And then it's almost a problem in their lives because they're being artificially told that they're good at something when they're not. I kind of, it was something interesting to think about going into Ed Wood. This is what the entire movie's about. So yes, there's plenty there. (laughs) And And I don't really know what to say next because it's kind of like this movie and Ed Wood himself, like, you have to wonder what was the path to getting such cult classic hero 
status for him, you know. Um, towards the end of his life in his 70s, cla- by the way, classic alcoholic, they don't really talk about it in the movie and stuff like that, but uh, I believe he died... Uh, due to complications from alcoholism, but in his later life, he was making sexploitation movies. How did he go from making these movies that nobody really cared about to like being iconic right now? You know, was it this film that did it? Was I'm sure that has obviously a part of it, but um, his connection to Bela Lugosi and and having directed Bela Lugosi in his last film that's part of it. You don't really know because, like, again, the movies aren't great. You're not going to sit down and say, "I want to watch." Plan Nine from Outer Space to enjoy myself. It's you enjoy it because it's bad. Almost that's the that's the point. Well, okay. So, are you familiar with the Dunning Kruger effect? I'm not. So I wasn't. You know, I was aware of it, but I certainly when I was able to describe it before researching it. But it, it's certainly possible that Ed Wood was suffering from the Dunning Kruger effect. So it's not an official diagnosis, but it's a hypothetical bias that is recognized in psychology, and it suggests the phenomenon where people with low skills at a task drastically overestimate their own ability and proficiency. So in short, you are wrong about yourself and your ability, but you're also wrong about other highly competent people and their ability. So this comes from social psychologist David Dunning and Justin Kruger and ultimately occurs when somebody suffers from deep internal illusions and illusory superiority. So with Ed, I, I, he may, Ed Wood, the person, he may have suffered from the Dunning-Kruger effect in both ways. He can't accept or recognize where his ability lies, but he also kind of misreads the advice and ability of, to foreshadow, and the ability of uh, Orson Welles when he talks to him near the end. Brilliantly played by Vincent D'Onofrio, by the way. Probably the best ever portrayal of Orson Welles in any film that I've ever seen. And that's genius. I never, I mean, sorry, not genius, but that's very enlightening. I had no idea about that, that that was actually a term coined for somebody who sort of doesn't know that they're not any good. And definitely, I think all of us out there know some people that think they're very good at something, but just really are not. I mean, <laughs> I mean what else way can you I, say it? I mean, you know? I'm, I'll just put myself. It's like, I think about this all the time, whether or not I'm, uh, you know, proficient at whatever I'm working on. I mean, everybody has their own self-doubts. And it is kind of like, you do have to like, men through that to kind of sometimes put yourself out there if you're if you're doing something especially if you're creating something vulnerable something personal and you're you're just putting yourself out there it takes a certain amount of self-confidence and just shutting off that type of self-doubt that is intrinsic in everybody yeah but i think talent can be overshadowed by being interesting meaning i don't know there's things that I'll talk about with uh, Tom Waits where I'm not in love with the guy's voice, but you can't deny that that's different and that's cool and that's interesting. And he's got interesting things to say in his mm-hmm. art. It's kind of uh, a big conversation to have, right? Like who's to say, first of all, everything is subjective, uh, objective, uh, subjective. I can't remember the word. Subjective. That, but everybody can kind of make their own decisions, right? Uh, about what's good or bad. And so who's to say what is, except for, it's clear when you hear somebody sing like Justin Timberlake that that guy, natural born talent, can sing really well. And then you, you might listen to like some other person out there that's singing and say, ah, 
yeah, they're good, but like they're no Justin Timberlake, right? It's an interesting conversation to have. There's also, I think that this is what the internet brings to the table these days is the, maybe this is the Ed Wood thing too. Like you can't look away because it's so bad. Like it's almost like that person should be famous for this routine they're doing because they sort of fell into something that they weren't necessarily trying to do, but they're so good at it because people can't look away from the person who's trying to be a comic, but just is not funny at all. But there's something in that for the viewer because they can't stop watching somebody fail. All right. I have a question for you. Don't think about this too hard. Just go with your gut. Would you want Ed Wood's career? Not a chance. No way. Okay. It's a hard question to answer only because of the fact that like, you, you don't really want to keep driving at something that gets you no, like nowhere. Like his end story, if it was his life that I had, I would die as an alcoholic making sexploitation movies at the end of my life. So yeah, I don't want career. that. Career. Not necessarily his life, but his career. Um, you know, like I said, I think about this all the time. Uh, it's really, it's really Edward's vis- uh, vision that is what has transcended him for so many years, and why, like, we're talking about him mm. today. Obviously, not just Tim Burton heralding him, but like that was a big part of it. But uh, it's the reason why he became an inspiration to artists like Tim Burton is is it was his vision. And you know, like like we're saying, most everyone can agree that his talent did not match his aspiration. And yeah, there's no easy answers, but this is I I, I often think about this. I mean, would you want his career? I mean, again, in uh, my gut answer would be yeah. I mean, we're, like, we're talking about the what he what he was conjuring up day to day. Like he he wanted to tell stories, and people he wanted to to show his work to people, and and we're still talking about him today. So it's like yeah, like I may not exactly want it, but like my gut certainly would be like that's that sounds incredible. Uh, well, we're talking about him today more so about what he wanted to do, not necessarily we're talking about him because of the work. Uh, the work isn't anything to really talk about. <laughs> That's why I'm saying his his inspiration. That's kind of why I'm focusing on that. His influence. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I guess that, I mean that's that's what I'm thinking of like when I go with my gut reaction. It's like, yeah, I would I would love to have that influential of a career where you inspired so many horror and sci-fi fans to or uh, artists to go into into film like that. Well, that's something I can definitely get on board with. I mean, I always love thinking that some song that I do is going to inspire somebody to pick up a guitar or some painting that I do is going to make someone want to paint. So I definitely get that. You know, switching gears here, it's about the music, which is excellent. And it's different, though, right? I mean, there's a lot of theremin going on here, but this was this was done by Howard Shore and not... Danny Elfman. I believe this was like sort of the first time that he broke off from Danny Elfman after having so much success. And we talked about Edward Scissorhands and things like that. So, wow. You know, uh, had you noticed that? I remember at the time when I first saw this thinking that was a big deal because they were just such a duo, him and Danny. I mean, Danny Elfman basically scored my childhood. So, you know, that's basically what I was (laughs) getting up and listening to. Not overtly. I just mean the amount of time I spent watching uh, movies scored by Danny Elfman, largely the Tim Burton ones. I hadn't thought about it, but yeah, it's not Elfman, but the score is amazing. The theremin is such a cool instrument uh, and it's like subtle. It's like, I mean, it just has that kind of 50 sci-fi vibe without even you kind of realizing or thinking directly like what, what instruments making this? I don't know. Like it's just, it's just, yeah, it's got that like paired with like bongos and stuff like that. That's super weird. Uh, Very cool. Howard Shore, 
definitely because you want to hate it because it's not scored by Danny Elfman. You um, need to step back and think about how great Howard Shore's score is for this. It's really good. Uh, Howard Shore, if I'm not mistaken, too, did Lord of the Rings. So, you know, no hack there. No, absolutely. George the Animal Steel, I just want to talk about him for a second. There's a scene where there's a wrestler, and this has really happened in real life, where Ed Wood had thought about hiring and, and did hire a wrestler named Tor Johnson, who he saw at a wrestling match. And he was like, this is a perfect monster, which he was right. You know, this is this big behemoth of a man. And it was played by as I said, George the Animal Steel. And I just want to talk about your childhood being scored by Danny Elfman. Well, my, my childhood watching wrestling with my, my father, it's a, one of the few great memories I have with my dad. It was watching George the Animal Steel eat the turnbuckle in the World Wrestling Federation, as it was called at the time. That was like his signature thing. And he would always steal Miss Elizabeth from Macho Man Randy Savage. And I just wanted to give a quick nod to... Uh, George the Animal Steel, who was a great character in his own right, and really cool that um, he's in this film as Tor Johnson. Because if you look back at these films, Bride of the Atom, I believe he was in, uh, you can see their perfect match. I, I actually vividly remember my father kind of mocking wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> so weird yeah, yeah. well it was kind of one of those things where they just had like some bond about like oh this is my favorite wrestler so then it becomes yours oh, no you doubt. know i mean my father and i were we were watching the cubs and goodfellas so you know we, we i guess we just had yeah. that <laughs> well you know there's another great talking about like little nods to the audience the director of photography on one of his films is asked a question hey come over here which dress works better for you this red one or this green one and and he says, I can't see the difference. I, I, I'm colorblind, but I kind of like the dark gray one. And it's just funny because obviously the film is shot in black and white. So we have no idea which one was the red one or the green one either. And it's a nice little breaking the fourth wall kind of moment. There. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We've uh, really been relishing in the monochrome glory of black and white lately. Um, and I don't think that's a coincidence. I'll watch I'll watch 20 Marvel movies for sure and, and, and love the way the color wheels pop and love it. But I always want to go back to something in black and white to like cleanse my palette. And uh, I, I think, it again, you know, talking about the black and white photography from the Vivian Meyer episode, it's just like I love the way a black and white item just looks, a, a, a photo, a film. It's just like it, there's just, again, it's just such an elemental way to tell a story. One of my favorite parts in the entire movie is Bella's cry for help. And this scene for the listener out there is really a beautiful moment between Ed Wood and... Bella Lugosi because there's 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 just the reality that Bella really needs and it's his only friend he needs Ed he's I think he's just basically out of morphine and going through withdrawals and so Ed comes over and his and, and we should talk about what's in Bella Lugosi's home and it's just all old relics of old photos of him and a huge, a very large painting that is always at the center of the room of him playing Dracula. So again, all these relics of the past. And, you know, in many ways, Bella can't escape his typecast. And he almost doesn't want to, though. He loves it. He loves being Count Dracula. Uh, he's equally celebrated and haunted by the character he brought to life. And in this scene, this lighting is so classic monster movie, lit from the bottom. 
and he's asking Ed to come with him to the afterlife. Eddie, come with me. He's basically saying, I'm gonna shoot you and I'll kill myself and we'll, we'll get out of here. and We'll be done of all this pain. And one of my favorite, probably my favorite, there's a lot of great lines in this film. But one of my favorite is, what are you drinking? And he goes, formaldehyde. And then again, because of Ed Wood's optimism, throughout the whole thing, he says, straight up around the rocks. You know, just kind of passing how morbid that is and how dire and desperate it is. Uh, I love that scene. Again, another, just another reason why Martin Landau got the Oscar. I mean, it says so much about their friendship in, like, the character's friendship in the film, like, right there, and just how much they were on the same wavelength. They were just, they just had such a, a good connection in terms of how much they wanted to make movies together, even though they were kind of, as we said, the misfits, the misanthropes, and, and kind of the outcasts, the ones that are not getting the chance that they want. And then, obviously, he goes to get some help, and within getting treatment, he becomes part of the news again, which brings them back to life in a way. People are finally interested in his story. It doesn't matter what it is. He's just glad to have the attention yeah, again. Yeah, what did he say? He said he's like, uh, I'm the first celebrity to go to rehab or something like that. Right. Yeah. Right. And they, I mean, and again, it just it continues with that friendship. They really writing and kind of getting on the same wavelength. And, and Lugosi gives such like a sincere thank you to Ed for giving him this light at the at the end of his life, near the end of his life, you know, it's in the performance, but it's also you kind of feel it like in the real life uh, relationship. That's beautiful in that way that everybody needs a friend, you know, and uh, this is one of the best friendships uh, shown in film history, in my opinion. I wanted to talk quickly about a personal experience that I had. I used to go to mem- movie memorabilia shows a lot, and I wish I still did. To be honest with you, they were really fun. I remember you used to see. Uh, Corey Feldman and Corey Haim, and they both signed like this great Lost Boys like poster for my friend Pat. And the one of the biggest stars that was ever there was Val Kilmer, and it was like right after he had finished that movie playing. I guess it was Alexander that he had like one eye in, and he was like signing those like pictures of himself, and he was charging like a hundred bucks because he was like the biggest star there and stuff. It's pretty funny, um, but it was amazing, and you got to see all these great like kind of stars of yesteryear, right? Oh, I met Zuzu too, by the way, from It's a Wonderful Life. Zuzu's oh. pedals, you know. And she talked about Jim. She talked about Jimmy Stewart, and that was kick ass. It was so cool. She was like, he was such a wonderful man, and I was like, of course he was. He's like the everyman, oh, yeah. you know. But I wanted to show you, and, and obviously out there you can't see this, but this is one of my prized possessions, and I'm going to show you, Pat, and maybe you've seen this, maybe I've talked about it. I'm I don't excited. Know. But I met Dolores Fuller, who in the film is portrayed by Sarah Jessica Parker. So I met the real Dolores Fuller, and this is uh, the autograph she gave me. So I passed up Val Kilmer, and I got Dolores Fuller's autograph. Wow. Look at that beautiful picture. It's Dolores Fuller, Bela Lugosi, and Ed Wood standing together. Two Darren, warm, Angora wishes. <laughs> oh, beautiful. Dolores Fuller. So, so, dude, that's a prized possession. Yeah. She was nothing but incredible. And there was a lot of surprises in that visit, so I just want to share them with you real quick. Obviously, she knew that everyone was there to say, I know you because you were in Ed Wood's films, right? That was like the point. But she had displayed on the table all of these number one hit records that she did with Elvis. She was a songwriter for Elvis Presley. 
So obviously she didn't stay with Ed, but she did talk very favorably of him and said he was a beautiful man, but he was troubled. Dolores isn't with us anymore. I believe she died in 2008. So I'm, I'm just, you know, relaying some things that she told me. But one of the greatest things, so not only did she say to Darren, warm Angora wishes, she also let me feel the Angora sweater that Ed Wood wore back when they were dating. She had it. And she's like, do you want to touch the sweater? And I got to feel it. And it was one of the coolest moments. She was so kind. The one thing that we left with, uh, she goes, I, I guess she unsuccessfully or maybe successfully, I can't remember, sued Tim Burton or maybe it was Touchtone the studio that made this film because of the fact that she didn't think she was portrayed in a very good light. But she also said that Bella Lugosi never swore like that and that he was a very kind man as well. And he would have never sworn like that. And of course, as we know in the movie business, you've got to make it interesting and, and you know, you embellish on things and stuff like that. Um, so I just wanted to share that little tidbit of meeting Dolores Fuller, who was a wonderful woman and gave me a great memory. And I have the autograph. To that prove is <laughs> incredible. I love that. I mean, I mean that experience alone, but then actually touching and coming in contact with a piece of such instrumental uh, memorabilia in film history is incredible. I mean, without that Angora sweater, we wouldn't have Ed Wood. We wouldn't have Tim Burton's film, Ed Wood. I mean, man, it's, I love it. That's so cool. Right, it was like a real-life MacGuffin, you know? Hell yeah, hell yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, but that's my story about Dolores Fuller, and I, I don't really have much else to add to this film except for the fact that, and it's weird to say because Ed Wood, it's been something that I wrote songs about. I wrote a song about Plan 9 from Outer Space, and I, again, I did it more so because it was part of this, like, talk about conscious living. It's sort of like talked about growing up that this is something you should like. You should like this B-movie director that worked with Bela Lugosi. If you like horror films, you got to know about Bela Lugosi and his work with Ed Wood. And so that's kind of where it came from for me. And then seeing this film, it be, you know, I love Johnny Depp, always have. And I just thought that he was so good in this that it became even bigger part of my life. And so I, I bought the poster. I went and visited uh, Dolores Fuller at a movie memorabilia show. And it's become such a big part of my life. And so I'm grateful to have it. I'm grateful we're talking about this at the very end of season one, because I think the reason that we wanted to talk about it is that idealism of wanting just sort of the blind idealism of something you love, which is film, in Ed Wood's case, and going at it and not really thinking too much about what's going to happen. And whether it's right to do that or it's harmful to your life kind of doesn't matter in this conversation because I don't know Ed Wood, but I imagine he was happy when he was making these films. And that's kind of what life is all about. That's what conscious living is all about, is just kind of doing what you want to do that's not swayed by anything else other than your determination to do what you love to do. Very well put. I love that. I mean, yeah, I, I 100% agree with all that. I mean, in terms of Ed Wood, like what remains for me is, is the determination and the unwavering confidence in oneself that you get from Ed Wood, the person and the film. I mean, the movie and the man. As we've mentioned, there was a clear disconnect between his talent and his ambition. Uh, it's a fear I have, even though it's still based on other people's expectations, which you should pretty much always ignore. But in the end, it, it, it didn't really matter because he is celebrated as a filmmaker and he inspired so many artists 
that I love. Like, I definitely have a sense of Wood's influence on Burton and Depp and others. Like, as in, without Wood, there would be no John Waters, there'd be no David Lynch or Burton himself. And that's that's ultimately what remains for me with this. To end this season, if you go back and think about what we've covered so far, this is just really great and kind of makes it a little bit more in our wheelhouse. Two, two artists in our own right that we're trying to kind of make our way through this by studying the greats, uh, as we've talked about with the Joe Strummer, no input in and no, no nothing comes out. So it's good to study these kind of things, whether they're they're you know, David Lean, who made these sweeping epics that was considered one of the greatest directors of all time, or Ed Wood, who made these B-movies and is kind of looked at as a hero because he didn't need them to be great for him to continue working. Um, and in my life, as we talked about in Daniel Johnson's episode, I don't really think that I'm the greatest singer of all time, but again, I have some things that I want to say, and so that's my vessel, right? And <laughs> it's different for everybody. Every artist is different. We've covered a lot of different artists in this season. And Ed Wood is definitely a fun one to explore because in many ways, any of us could be Ed Wood as long as we have the determination to do it and be excited about it, no matter if we have the talent for it or not. <laughs> yeah, I make it a priority in my life to submerge myself uh, surround myself with with all the talents that inspires me and and living that life is definitely the apex of conscious living to me when we come full circle on remainders it's good to remember that this is a conscious living podcast and so every time we talk about this art that we're consuming both Patrick and myself are really trying to look at it from an angle of asking questions of why these things are are important in our lives, not based on a critic or what somebody else told you about them, but from your clean slate look at what is being presented to you. And this film is just great in that it gives you so much of a straight look at somebody working in Hollywood that still made it, you know, d despite having uh, a number one hit movie like Orson Welles. Like you said, do you want his career? Eh, not necessarily, but you, you, you've definitely convinced me through this episode that the man was influential in very many ways, and in ways I'd never even thought about through other artists who have made films who were inspired by Ed Wood. Very well said. Um, I'd love to close for myself with a quote that I've uh, been thinking about quite a bit lately from, uh, from James Baldwin, um, who's a fantastic writer, is one of my favorites, has inspired me. And it's definitely got me, made me thinking a lot about like what we're doing here and kind of like applying it to my own life, who inspires me, how it reflects in my own work. And uh, it's just, it's, it's one that stuck with me. It goes, quote, for while the tale of how we suffer and how we are delighted and how we may triumph is never new, it always must be heard. There isn't any other tale to tell it's the only light we've got in all this darkness. What does that mean to you, Pat? That again, it's the it's the stories uh, that that I can share that I that I want to hear from your story that I want to hear from the stories that have inspired me and and how I can connect with them and you know maybe for lack of a better term use that to make my own life better. And just hearing that only light we have in the darkness point of that quote just brings up the memories of what it feels like to create. It really is a light in the darkness for me. Whenever I 
get a paintbrush and I start painting, everything else melts away. When I'm trying to write a song, everything else melts away. And I imagine for you, when you're writing, you're so focused on this thing that you are, it almost could be any kind of surrounding around you, you would never notice because you're so ingrained in what you're doing. And being able to share that then, the, you know, the product of that, it, it, it tells so many stories. The, the finished art tells so many stories that people can digest the way that they want. And you're certainly right. We're doing that in this podcast every time we do an episode where we discuss things that I find new and even rewatching things at an older age, like this film, and pulling things out, talking about different things that have changed in the last 20 years or so since this movie came out, that make it more acceptable to be a certain way. It's good to talk about that. It's Nina Simone had talked about your duty as an artist to reflect the times. And a lot of times, this art that we're seeing is from the past, which makes you think about where we've come from in either a positive way or a negative way in the time that we're living in right now. And it's art is really the only thing that can do that. I was thinking the other day, seeing an old photo of the Griffith Observatory, and it was like around the time it was built. And I thought, man, these buildings that remain there are really the only standing monument to the fact that there was people that lived here before us. They are the only things that got to witness that time. And if they could talk, man, the stories they could tell us about the past. I, that's what that, in that sense, I'm so grateful to have music, books, and film. Not to talk about it again, but like anytime you pick up a book, you now have more knowledge to talk about something with somebody else. And to expand the palette um, for another person to live harmoniously in this world that is, at times, as you put it in that quote, a little dark. And it can end up bringing a bright, bright spot to somebody when they might need it most. The former connection that has uh, got me through lows and highs, and it's one that I will continue to cherish. We will definitely continue that in season two. And it has been a pleasure to do this with you, Patrick. And uh, as he said in the beginning, we're so grateful to all of you out there listening to our podcast. We'll be back with season two. Thanks again for listening to all of season one. Uh, If you want to go and check out previous episodes, our website, remainderspod.com has it all. And with that, I'm signing off for season one. Congratulations, buddy. We made it. Congratulations to you. It's been more than a pleasure. You have been listening to Remainders. This episode was written, narrated, and produced by Darren Varell and Patrick McIntyre. Original music, episode art, logo, and editing by Darren Varell. Find out what else remains by visiting our website at remainderspod.com. And we're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just search at remainderspod. Please tell anyone you can about our show, and we look forward to telling you more of what remains next time. So
open and close the door The UFOs, they scared us half to death You know, I was sad when Bella had to go Let's go! by his great boss The old man left that hole Never to return again Cemeteries where I found my friends, they're dead Again